Welcome to the Natural Health for People and Pets podcast, a show that aims to empower you with the knowledge and tools needed to take control of your own health and well-being, as well as providing health-promoting strategies for the dogs in your life. The world of health and nutrition can be overwhelming, so what better way to understand what works and what doesn't, what's evidence-based and what's not, than to hear it from someone in the know? So, please welcome your host of the show, accredited naturopath and nutritionist, Narelle Cook. Welcome back to Natural Health for People and Pets. I'm co-host of the show, Glenn Cook, and I'm going to introduce the host of the show to tell you what the subject matter is about. Hello, everyone. Hello. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has, and I do apologize to everyone. But So you should. Life just got in the way. It was so bizarre. I mean, we lived together, but just trying to coordinate a time between work commitments and life commitments mm. and head cold commitments, we just didn't find the time to sit down together. And you've also been studying. You've got two things on the fly at the moment. Yeah, there's always something going on. Tell everyone what you're doing at the moment study-wise. Well, I am doing a certificate in animal health sciences, which is sort of a prerequisite to something bigger I want to do in animal health, and a certificate for in assessment and training, which is not the most exciting, but it is <laughs> a pathway to something bigger and better for, you know, what I, I love educating people about health and nutrition, particularly dog health and nutrition. Mm -hmm. So that is potentially going to open up some avenues in that area. I've never heard you complain so much about a training course before. I know. Like for anyone who knows me, I love study, like love, love, love it. And this cert for <laughs> is really doing your head in. Oh, it's just painful. It's so dry. But mm. like I said, it's a means to an end. And look, I did it 15 years ago. I just let it lapse because I didn't need it anymore. So here we are doing it all over again. Mm -hmm. Talking about the last episode, if you mentioned that, I can't remember. We had a really good response to our interview with Chris Essex, who is the founder and managing director of Big Dog Pet Foods in we Australia. Did. So what I loved about the interview with Chris was just being able to highlight the amazing quality of the product that Big Dog is producing and the fact that it's 100% Australian owned and made, they use human grade ingredients. There's nothing nasty or artificial added. It's low carb, it's grain free. So pretty much everything I'm looking for in a pet food, particularly coming from a health perspective. So if you haven't already, please jump on to the Big Dog website. So that's bigdogpetfoods.com. And for full transparency, we should note that they are now sponsors of Natural Health for People and Pets. Yeah, and that's because we're both very much in alignment with our outlook and our principles for dog health and nutrition. I think it's a beautiful relationship. Yeah, well, you never have taken something on just for financial gain if it didn't pass a rigorous routine of testing and your own ethics in feeding and nutrition anyway. So I'm pretty proud of you for that. Absolutely. And so, yeah, on their website, check out their resource centre. So it's full of articles, many of which I have written. So definitely get onto that. <laughs> but it's got articles, they've got guides, they've answered all the frequently asked questions on raw food feeding, natural diets, and just general health and nutrition for both dogs and cats. So don't forget that Big Dog also do cats. Yep. And now well. probiotics. Yeah. So Big Dog's been amazingly generous with my upcoming seminar on the 5th of June, which sold out. So don't try and get tickets now. But not only did they agree to give everyone who's attending a free three kilo box of raw patties, but they're also giving everyone a bottle of their new probiotic, which is just awesome. Sitting in here, taking up space in our studio. It is. <laughs> I had to find a room that was away from the dogs. And yeah, jump onto their Facebook page as well. So Big Dog Pet Foods 
like their Facebook page. And just while we're talking about my upcoming seminar, big shout out to Antonol Australia. So they also agreed to provide everyone attending with a free bottle of Antonol Rapid, which is just phenomenal. They've been amazing. And they ran a competition to send some people to your seminar. They did. So I'm super excited and just to share the love with everyone who's attending on the day. So you've got some goodies. You've got goodies from Antonol and you've got goodies from Big Dog. There'll be some samples from Zebu Peak and there'll be a few prizes. So it's going to be awesome. It really will. You'll no doubt hear about it after the event. <laughs> of course. And if you want Narelle to do a similar seminar in your hometown, you can contact her on her website and she can arrange to do something similar with you as well. So there's a few people in discussion with her at the moment. I think there's going to be something at some stage coming up in Queensland. If there's any person currently in Australia, because we can't go international at the moment, Narelle and I were going to go over to Maine in 2020 to mm. to do uh, a similar thing, but which is in the United States, but with international borders closed, we're restricted to Australia. So if you do want to speak to her, that's how to get in contact with her on our website, naturalhealth. And nutrition.com.au. And nutrition.com.au. Yeah, I'm happy to travel. I just need someone to host me and organize it and get the people to attend. But if you want to plan it and host it, I'll show up. Yep. All good. Well, let's move on to what we're going to talk about today. So back in episode nine, I spoke about histamine and mm-hmm. its role in health and allergies in particular. And there was a really great response to that show as well. So after the show, I saw lots of comments coming up on social media. So people were a lot more aware, particularly in the, the dog feeding pages and the allergy pages about the role of histamine, which is why I do what I do, you know, to get the message out there and to highlight that often people's default recommendations for certain health conditions uh, as they relate to our dogs you know, may not always be the most appropriate. That's why I love educating people about just, you know, things you might need to think about differently with what you're doing. Like what? Well, with the histamines, you know, with the fermented foods and things like that, they're high in histamines, but they're often recommended for gut health for dogs Mm -hmm. with health issues and allergies. But if people want to know about that, go back to episode nine. Yes. And listen to that show. So today, following on, because that was so popular, I thought I would talk about oxalates in our diet and in our dog's diet. I mean, you're going to learn all about what they are, but as a clinician, it's really hard when it comes to all of these natural compounds that are in our food and the potential negative health consequences they can have. Because like if someone presents, like if a person presents or a dog presents in my clinic and they've got like all of these chronic health problems and the symptoms like are quite broad or vague, like I can't tell them, hey, just go on a gluten-free, dairy-free, like low histamine, low oxalate, you know, low salicylate, low-carb diet and everything will be fine. Like, because seriously, what else, like what is there left to eat? Ice chips. It gets really challenging. So the whole point of today, we're going to talk about oxalates, but the point is to highlight this as one possibility that people may want to consider if they feel like they've tried everything. Like if you hear some of the symptoms and what I'm going to talk about and you're like, you know, maybe that could be part of my picture. You know, this is something you can try. It's not for everyone. It's not that everyone has to go low oxalate, but there is a time and a place for when it might be helpful. Well, this is good subject matter for me because I don't know what oxalates are. So I'm going to learn something myself. And I think a lot of people will, because when I was back at uni, like we were really only taught to move someone onto a low oxalate diet if they had a lot of joint pain, so, you know, chronic arthritic conditions or, you know, kidney stones or kidney disease. But there are lots of other symptoms of excessive oxalates in the body. 
And to give everyone a really powerful example, and this is part of what triggered me to talk about it today as well, there's a nutritionist and a health researcher in the US who's probably now one of the leading experts on the topic of oxalates and their impact on health. So her name is Sally Norton and her website is sallyknorton.com. So if any of what you hear today sort of resonates with you, absolutely jump onto her website. And a lot of the information I'll be talking about comes from her site. And the reason she started specializing in this area is that despite her like absolute love of healthy food and healthy living from when she was a child, she suffered through decades of pain and health challenges. So things like, you know, chronic foot pain, joint pain, muscle pain, back pain, sinus infections, irritable bowel syndrome, thyroid problems, reproductive problems. She had bleeding problems, which led to iron deficiency She became highly allergic just generally and was like super sensitive to chemicals. A sleep study showed that her brain was waking up 29 times every hour of every night. Oh, my God. So that's crazy. And then over the years, like her fatigue had become so bad that she couldn't concentrate. And all of these like health challenges eventually forced her to quit her job. So she was a research officer at a university medical school department. Um, So she just couldn't work. And you know, across all of this time, the doctors just couldn't find anything really wrong with her. And out of everything they tried, nothing helped. So it wasn't until she sort of stumbled across oxalates and experimented with a low oxalate diet that she started to feel better. So her energy improved, her pain resolved, you know, a lot of her other symptoms resolved. And I just found it like super fascinating. Like I got into Sally Norton. She presented like a four-hour webinar for health practitioners on oxalates, which um, I listened to as part of my continuing education. And it was so fascinating to listen to her story and just the stories of her patients that she's now treating for high oxalates and the associated symptoms. So that's the background of why we're talking about oxalates today. But as Glenn said, he knows nothing about what oxalates are. So let's sort of dig in. As usual, I really do like to include a little bit of technical information at the beginning because it's important that people understand the how and the why of things rather than me just saying, do this or do that. And people just blindly following my advice. So that's something I'm really passionate about is helping people understand what's the reason for everything. Mm. So for those who are technically technically minded and savvy, Mm. you're going to love this. For the others, you're going to learn something and bear with us. So oxalates, they're like these tiny organic salts. So they form when a compound called oxalic acid binds to minerals, so potassium, magnesium, calcium. So oxalic acid itself, have you heard of oxalic acid? I have not. I've heard of lactic acid, but I have not heard of oxalic oxalic acid. acid. So it's super corrosive. And the reason I thought you might have heard of it and, you know, some, this is very sexy, I was going to say some men might be more familiar with it, is that it's often used as an industrial cleaner. So to remove things like rust and fuel stains and blood stains, It's used in textile bleaching. It's used as a heavy-duty timber cleaner. So you can buy it from Bunnings. I think I Googled it. You can, you know, it's just like, it's nasty. It's corrosive. But when it binds to a mineral such as calcium and it becomes an oxalate, it's less corrosive. And because of all the minerals, calcium has the strongest affinity for oxalic acid. So calcium oxalate is generally the main oxalate compound that we hear about and talk about when it comes to health. Right. People may not realize this either. Oxalates are found like, all throughout nature and they're produced in most plants. I mean, they're also produced as a normal part of human sort of metabolism, but it's considered an anti-nutrient in humans. So there's really no health benefit to having oxalates in our body. Mm -hmm. 
which is quite different to plants. So in plants, oxalates have a really awesome purpose. They protect the plant from excessive calcium in the soils. If you ever look at oxalates under a a microscope, so if you Google them and look at the images, they're nasty. Like they're really sharp crystalline structures with like these razor sharp pointy edges and spikes coming out of them. So when insects eat a plant that's got a lot of oxalates, it actually is harmful and damaging to the insects. Right. So it's a protective mechanism. And because of their structure, they can also provide structural support to the plant itself. This is really interesting. So people who love organic food, because organic food and plants are more prone to insect attack compared to, say, conventionally sprayed crops, they actually have higher levels of these natural compounds that are detrimental to us for the most part, such as oxalates, because they need to ramp up their defence mechanisms because they don't have the chemicals. So it's a natural deterrent. Yeah, it's a natural defence mechanism of plants Mm. um, to sort of keep pests away. Right. I find that really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But when it comes to the human body, like as I mentioned, we make some naturally ourselves, but, you know, up to 80, well, between 50 and 80% of the oxalates in our body is coming in through the diet. The diet's going to be the main focus today as it applies to us and our dogs. But just before sort of we get into, you know, what foods are high in oxalates, but in terms of how the body makes it, there's a compound called hydroxyproline, which is an amino acid that comes from protein. And it's a precursor to oxalate formation, which means it gets converted into oxalate in the body, which increases sort of the body's overall levels of oxalates. But hydroxyproline is found in things like gelatin, bone broth, and collagen supplements. So they're all really popular these days. I know I've jumped on the collagen bandwagon as I've started to see all my crow's feet and my wrinkles getting worse and worse. But if you're prone to kidney disease or kidney stones, collagen, bone broth and gelatin, you know, may just be making matters worse for you. Mm. And the other interesting compound is vitamin C. So vitamin C is a precursor to oxalate in the body. So even two grams of vitamin C, which is nothing. I mean, most people over winter would easily take 1,000 milligrams a couple of times a day, but that can increase the oxalate level in the body by anywhere from 20% to 50%, depending on the person. So again, vitamin C considered really benign and safe, but not necessarily everyone's friend, depending on oxalate levels. So there is also a genetic disorder called primary hyperoxaluria, which causes the body to produce more oxalates as well. How are you going? Are you still with me? I don't know anything about it, but I'm learning. Okay, Mm. good. The most commonly accepted symptoms of excessive oxalates in the diet tend to be those related to what's called the genitourinary system. So, you know, organs like the kidneys, the bladder, the genitals. And, you know, what you might see is like urinary urgency, high urinary frequency, cloudy urine is a good indicator that oxalates might be causing a problem, bladder pain, incontinence, kidney pain, kidney stones, pelvic floor pain, prostatitis and vulvodynia in women. So vulvodynia, it's like this chronic inflammatory state, which causes a lot of pain for women, like throughout the whole genitalia area. But so they're the most common symptoms that doctors will tend to know about, but there's this like whole body of evidence that's increasing for all of these other symptoms that may be as a result of high oxalates in the diet. And a lot of doctors don't recognize them mainly because the symptoms are so vague that it could be attributed to, you know, pretty much anything. And that's, and that's the challenge. So this is why when you listen to the show today, if you think some of this is relevant to you, you know, you've just got to give it a go, basically. Right. 
So at least consider that that might be a contributing factor to your ailment. That's right, because just because something's not 100% documented. You go rule it out. Yeah, and it's so safe to do so. So there's going to be no harm if you do want to try a low oxalate diet, but I'll talk about a few little important bits if you do want to go down that path. But some of the other non-sort of atypical symptoms that you might present with include feeling unstable or weak or easily injured, being slow to heal, because like I said, oxalates are these sharp little crystals that can get into the bloodstream and move around the body and sort of lodge in joints and things. I mean, just think like gout, you know, uric acid crystals. It's the same sort of concept. So they really do interfere with connective tissues particularly and sort of the maintenance and the repair. So they can lead to sort of joint and muscle weakness in that regard. And then making, because they're so sharp and damaging, tissues that are affected by them take longer to heal. Mm -hmm. So yeah, all your joint problems, joint pain, stiffness, soreness, swelling, osteoporosis or weak or brittle bones or cracked teeth. Because remember, calcium is an oxalate magnet. So the calcium gets bound up by the oxalate, which means it's no longer available to support our bone health and our teeth and things like that. Right. There's evidence that it may be connected with like poor sleep, nerve pain, you know, all of the mental health presentations, whether it's poor concentration, emotional fatigue, depression, anxiety, poor memory, brain fog, headaches, even hiccups because, and I thought this was really interesting, because the nerve irritation that can be caused by oxalates may actually be a trigger for some people to hiccup. Okay. There you go. I didn't know that. Fatigue, because oxalates damage our our cells and our enzymes and our mitochondria, autoimmune problems, like, you know, your rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, thyroid problems, digestive problems is huge because, like I said, they can damage the mucous membrane lining of the gut. So even if they're not the actual cause, they can certainly make symptoms worse if you've got any gut issues. Mineral deficiencies, as I mentioned, you know, they bind to minerals. And it can also compromise our detoxification pathways because the oxalates damage our cells. They can also deplete glutathione levels. So glutathione is, you know, one of our master antioxidants in the Mm. body. So when glutathione levels are compromised, then, you know, you get an increase in free radicals in the body, which can just increase overall cellular stress and cause early cell death. That's a lot of symptoms and you can see why it's so hard to sort of pinpoint because there's a million different possible causes for all of those symptoms that I've just mentioned. Mm. And the big problem is that, you know, a lot of super healthy foods are actually high in oxalates. And for this reason, you know, a lot of the fad diets out there can potentially cause a lot of problems for people because technically you can die from oxalate toxicity. Like it's not common but the body's burden of oxalates can get to the point where it can kill you. So keep that in mind. And to put it in perspective, a healthy level of oxalate in the diet is said to be around 100 to 200 milligrams of oxalates a day and a low oxalate diet. So if you've got kidney stones, your doctor might say go on a low oxalate diet. That's about 50 milligrams Mm. a day. But get this. A typical smoothie, let's say you're having a smoothie for breakfast because you want to get healthy and you put a couple of handfuls of spinach in there and you put some almond milk, you might put, you know, a spoonful of nut butter of some description. That could easily and likely will contain over a thousand milligrams of oxalate. Wow. So that's one meal. So we should be having around 100 to 200 at the most. One smoothie can blow you out over a thousand. And then if you had I don't know, let's say you had meat for dinner with some Swiss chard and some sweet potato on the side. That might be like another thousand milligrams. So people can really rack up like thousands of milligrams of oxalate in their diet and not realizing it. But 
the burden on the body and, you know, the potential for symptoms to sort of manifest with that load is huge. And just to give some examples of foods that are high in oxalate, so I mentioned Swiss chard. That's one of the worst. You've got spinach, your beet greens. So usually it's the leafy parts of the plants. So, right. you know, like your beet greens rather than the beet itself, mm-hmm. things like that. But sweet potato and white potato, uh, rhubarb. So they're all really high. But things like chocolate, beans, grains, seeds, nuts, kiwi fruit, you know, a lot of the berries. And this is something I didn't know until I listened to this uh, webinar is black pepper and turmeric. So you think about it. You know, if you've got joint pain or if your dog's got joint pain, the go- one of the go-to supplements. Turmeric. Turmeric. Mm. And for people who make their own golden paste at home, you know, they're using a turmeric powder and they usually add in black pepper to it to help with the absorption. But turmeric powder is actually really high in oxalate. So if people want to work around that, what I always use and recommend for my human and dog clients is the curcumin extract. So there's two curcumin extracts that I know a low in oxalate. And one is called the curcumin C3 complex. And the other one is called the curcumin BCM95 complex. So they're my go-tos because I know they're not going to aggravate anything. But that's a really interesting point that people generally don't know about or consider. I would never have even known any of that. Well, that's why I do what I do. Exactly. Yeah. I love what I do. Yep. And people who suddenly go on a juice diet or even just, you know, they want to get healthy. So they go on a predominantly plant-based diet that contains a lot of spinach and sweet potato, berries, green tea, black coffee, dark chocolate. So it's basically just liquid oxalates. (laughs) You've just, you're ruining everything for me now. I heard chocolate in there. I heard rhubarb. These are some of my favorite things. But there was no red wine, so we're all good. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So grapes don't contain oxalates. Some berries do. I don't know if grapes are high up on the list. I'd have to double check. There's lots of lists out there, but we'll talk about that mm-hmm. as well. So people go, you know, they want to get healthy. They go on a juice cleanse or they start just eating a lot of plant matter and they feel worse. And this is usually put down to like a detox reaction. Like it's so common, like you feel crap and everyone's like, oh, you're just detoxing. You know, all the rubbish is coming out because you're eating healthy. But in many cases, it could actually be that they've just exceeded their body's oxalate threshold with all of these healthy foods and they're experiencing acute hyperoxaluria or oxalate toxicity. So, you know, you don't, or our bodies don't detoxify oxalate. So detoxification happens in the liver and essentially involves changing the identity of the substance being detoxified by certain chemical modifications. So when people say, oh, you're just detoxifying the oxalates, it's just not possible. Our liver cannot detoxify oxalates there's absolutely no way for our bodies to make them less toxic. So they're either filtered out of the body through like the urine or the stools and, you know, they can be broken down by gut bacteria. But how's this? There was a paper in 2018, so pretty current paper, Mm -hmm. the title of which was Green Smoothie Cleanse Causing Acute Oxalate Nephropathy. So nephropathy, just think kidney disease. So I've got the abstract here in front of me. I'm just going to read a couple of snippets from it because it really just drives home how severe a reaction, you know, these healthy foods can cause in some people. So just reading from the abstract, oxalate nephropathy is an uncommon condition that causes acute kidney injury with the potential for progression to end-stage renal disease. So they report a case of acute oxalate nephropathy in a 65-year-old woman temporarily associated with the consumption of an oxalate-rich green smoothie juice cleanse prepared from juicing oxalate-rich green leafy vegetables and fruits. 
So she's just going on a health kick. She had normal kidney function before using the cleanse and then developed acute kidney injury that progressed to end-stage renal disease because of the cleanse. So that's pretty full on. Mm. I have a question. Yep. Hearing you go through the explanation, is anybody genetically predisposed to this more than other people? Like is it something that, you know, like you mentioned this lady before that got you onto this Mm. or that you studied her work through her symptom so did she have more like a genetic predisposition to it? Like, is this something that some people suffer acutely with as opposed to other people? That's where my interest is being peaked now. It's a super awesome question. So as I mentioned earlier, there is like an actual genetic condition called primary hyperoxaluria. And those people absolutely are more predisposed to high levels of oxalates in the body naturally. So mm. their, their body burden, you know, what their body is, you know, creating itself and then what's coming in, they just don't deal with it well. So that's them. They're their own little box. But there's so many factors that can make people to become what's called hyperabsorbers of oxalate. So remember oxalates, if they're just sort of bound up and excreted, generally that's fine. If they go out through the urine, as long as people are drinking enough fluids that the urine doesn't become concentrated and the body can flush it out that way or if it gets bound up with compounds and then excreted in the stools, that's fine. But what happens, you know, factors that can really increase the risk of symptoms, you know, in that article, acute kidney disease and renal failure, include things like, so people have had a gastric bypass, which automatically compromises the integrity of like the gut lining. So it's making it more porous. So it's easier for oxalates to get into the body. So basically, you know, people with diets that are pro-inflammatory, so, you know, highly processed diets or lots of alcohol, which again are compromising the integrity of the gut barrier and allowing more oxalates to come in through the diet. People with malabsorption issues, particularly fat malabsorption, because what happens in this instance is that the fat binds to the calcium in the gastrointestinal tract, which means that the calcium isn't available anymore to bind to the oxalates that are coming in from the diet and sort of being removed that way. Does that make sense? So To you it does. (laughs) (laughs) So normally when oxalates come into the body, one of the best things that can happen is that it binds to calcium and gets excreted. Right, okay. But when there's a lot of fat in the gut, Mm -hmm. the fat binds to the calcium instead. Right. So it inhibits the connection of the oxalate connecting with the calcium. Yeah, so now you've got all this free oxalate that can be absorbed into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So that's more likely to happen with people who had their gallbladder out. So anyone with gallbladder disease or lack of gallbladder, they're going to have fat malabsorption issues. So that that sort of puts them up at a higher risk as well. And, you know, this is super common for us and our dogs, a history of antibiotic use or current antibiotic use because one, the dysbiosis created, you know, with antibiotic use is known to contribute to leaky gut or increased permeability of the gut lining. But there are certain bacteria that help to break down oxalates. And so if we're sort of wiping out everything with antibiotics, then we lose that as a sort of a safety factor for reducing the burden of oxalates. And another thing is diet's deficient in B6, so vitamin B6. And most people were like, oh, you know, surely I'm not going to be deficient in vitamin B6. But vitamin B6 is really important just for the sort of the body's handling of oxalates and our bodies produce more oxalates naturally when we're low in vitamin B6. But people with, again, a poor diet and 50% of us on average are eating ultra processed, crappy nutrient lacking diets. So what are some immediate good ways that people could build up their B6 intake? 
just eating less processed food yep. and just more whole food. So there's nothing, there's no food that I'm going to say this food, like you have to eat this food because it's awesomely high in vitamin B6. I mean, a lot of the grains and legumes and nuts and seeds contain high levels of B vitamins across the board, but it's just about eating a better diet. Generally, alcohol leaches so many nutrients from the body. So, you know, making sure that your alcohol consumption is sort of moderated and the oral contraceptive pill for women like really depletes a lot of key nutrients, including the B vitamins. So mm-hmm. they're naturally at a greater risk of nutrient deficiencies. But I just want to give one more example from the literature of when people just go on a health kick and it goes terribly wrong. So there was another example of a man this time that went on a weight loss diet and he was eating six meals a day. So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Like he's been sensible about it. His day was full of spinach and berries and nuts. But as a result of his diet, he actually developed acute onset kidney disease. So that's just another example of when, you know, you're trying to get healthy. It doesn't have to be extreme. Like it just really, it's one of my little soapbox topics, I think, where people just feel like to make progress in any area, it's, it's got to be all or nothing. It's got to be yeah. you know extreme. Um, otherwise, they don't see the value or the point in it. And it's generally the worst thing you can do, whether it's for weight loss or any sort of other area of your life. It's the little choices we make every day that are going to add up and make the biggest difference. Like you don't have to just go on a juice cleanse for a week, you know, for your weight loss. Recently, Pat and I just did a podcast episode on frustration on the canine paradigm. And that topic tend to come up a lot about extremities, like people Mm. just being extreme in their thinking and their actions and so forth. And I think that extreme always is the catalyst for problems. Like Mm -hmm. Anytime I find that people are being extreme in, in their behavioral patterns or dogs are being extreme in their behavioral patterns, it usually leads to a negative outcome. That's right. It's just, it's not sustainable. I mean, yes, people might get results in the first few weeks mm-hmm. and feel good, but then you can't keep that level of extremeness up. And then everything always tends to come crashing down and the situation is often worse than beforehand. So any of my patients will know I'm all about slow and steady wins the race. Yep. And if you think about, you know, even a lot of the low carb ketogenic and gluten-free diets that are out there at the moment, they rely heavily on a lot of high oxalate foods, you know, almonds, particularly like there's almond flour, almond bread, almond butter, almond milk. They're sort of a staple when you're doing gluten-free or low carb and then all your leafy greens and berries because, you know, they're low carb as well. But even if that sounds really depressing for everyone... There's a lot of foods that you can eat that are low in oxalates. So for all of those carnivores out there, you know, meat pretty much contains no oxalates, dairy, eggs, you know, fats and oils. So, you know, most of the non-plant foods are good to go. But even within the, you know, the leafy greens and the vegetables, rocket, bok choy, cabbage, cauliflower, zucchini, coriander, cucumber, lettuce, mushrooms, green peas, like there's a lot that you can put on a plate that's low in oxalates. So this would be something that vegans would have to be painfully aware of, right? Well, you'd think so, but I get a lot of vegetarians. Well, I don't get a lot. I get some vegetarians and vegans in my clinic and a lot of people are doing it badly. So, you know, they're not even considering the obvious things like iron and B12. So sometimes I think they're not going to be thinking about, you know, these more sort of out there compounds like oxalates. Yeah. Well, this is not a topic that I've really come across in my life before. Even when you brought up this topic as a subject matter for the podcast, I was thinking, I don't even know what that is. 
I'm completely ignorant to it. So this is all new information to me right now. And there might be people out there who've heard it and, you know, like it might be a subject matter that they're very familiar with and they're thinking, oh, how could you not have heard about this? We did this in science at secondary school, but it might not be either. I don't know. But I guess that's the challenge. Like as a clinical naturopath and nutritionist, a lot of people come to me because they've tried everything else. You know, they've been to the doctors. The doctors have sort of got to the point where we're like, we don't know or there's nothing else we can do for you. So, you know, we're forced to just think outside the box and look for any possible sort of contributing factors that may be impacting someone's health and contributing to their symptoms. So that's why we come up with these sort of things. Absolutely. But I guess when it comes to our dogs, you know, eating grains, things like wheat, soy and corn, like they're extremely high in oxalates as are, as I've already mentioned, potatoes, but so is beet pulp. So if people don't realise the bulk of many dog kibbles these days are bordering on vegetarian and, you know, they're just filled out with potato and beet pulp and, you know, grains and legumes. So, you know, our dogs are getting pretty decent amounts of oxalates in their diet. And the other way that kibble diets contribute to problems for some dogs is that because they lack moisture, so a typical kibble might have about 10% moisture, whereas things like muscle meats and organ meats and even bone, like bone, oh, if I've got it right from memory, you know, might have about 30% moisture, but your muscle meats and your organ meats are, you know, sitting up around the 70% moisture. So if dogs aren't consuming enough fluid throughout their day and they're eating a kibble-based diet, like that's going to result in like a really concentrated urine, which increases their risk of kidney stones forming. That's something people need to be aware of. I mean, I never used to pay attention until we had Ladybug with her spinal injury and that's increased her risk for UTIs. Like I never really paid attention to how much water our dogs were drinking Mm. in a day, but now I'm acutely aware. Like I know if Ladybug hasn't been drinking enough, I'm straight on it because I don't want to have to go down antibiotic paths with UTIs and things like that. Yep. And one of your ways to encourage her to drink is bone broth. Yes. Ladybug goes mental for bone broth. Yep. So when, you know, with our dogs, raw food diets are much better for them from a moisture content perspective. But a lot of raw fed dogs, particularly people who are making like homemade raw food diets for their dogs, they can contain a lot of high oxalate plant matter. Things like spinach and sweet potato and berries are really common Mm. for raw fed dogs. But, you know, your dog would have to eat a lot of spinach to cause damage. So dogs that have healthy kidneys and are drinking, you know, adequate amount of water can easily process the amounts of oxalates that most people are going to be putting in their dog's diet if they're just making it themselves from home. But if you are feeding your dog a lot of spinach and sweet potato, you know, every day long term, that can cause kidney stress and you might get symptoms such as muscle weakness, you know, heart arrhythmias and, you know, a lot of other things. So you do need to sort of Be mindful of it, but not stress out and be paranoid about it. Look, it is complicated. You can Google lists of like high oxalate and low oxalate foods, but you've got to be mindful. One, there's a lot of discrepancies between different lists, but they are a good place to start. Two, the type of foods within a meal affects how much oxalate is absorbed. And three, there are what's called soluble and insoluble oxalate. So we're not going to go into any of that today. But if you're eating a meal that's got calcium in it, like we've said, calcium binds to oxalates and can help pull it out of the body. So adding milk to black tea is going to reduce the oxalate burden. If you're having spinach and you have ricotta and spinach, Mm -hmm. that's going to reduce the oxalate burden. So the tricky thing is, again, just to touch on it so people can sort of have it in the back of their minds, there is less oxalates in kale than there is in spinach, but spinach has more calcium in it than kale. 
So technically, you might get more oxalates from kale because there's less calcium to bind it up. How dare these plants just confuse the matter even further? I know. And for people who are really prone to oxalate issues, the recommendation by Sally Norton is to take a calcium supplement, particularly calcium citrate, before you eat a meal that's rich in oxalates. And that's Mm -hmm. just going to bind up the oxalates that are coming in through the diet if you're not having like dairy-rich foods with that meal as well. Right. The great thing is for people who are raw feeding their dogs, if you're giving your dog a a raw bone, like meaty bone, every day or every few days, like they're going to get that calcium that they need to bind up any of the oxalates from maybe the spinach or the sweet potato that you might also be feeding. So that's good if you're buying commercial patties such as the big dog patties. I mean, they've got all that bone already in them ground up. So again, hugely beneficial. As long as they don't have gallbladder issues. Well, that's where things get complicated. I mean, we give, I give general advice, but if, you know, if someone or their dog has unique health needs, you really do need to speak to someone to sort of nut out the detail of what's appropriate in that situation. So just to wrap things up a little bit, how can people know if oxalates are an issue for them? I mean, we've been through the symptoms, we've been through the foods, we've given some examples of the juice cleanse or the healthy eating can be a trigger for some people. But there's actually no super easy way to determine if oxalates are causing an issue or the extent of the issue. And, you know, a lot of doctors beyond the sort of the kidney symptoms, it won't even come to their mind to sort of... Consider it. Yeah, to Mm. suggest and consider. But the accepted medical test for oxalate accumulation involves taking biopsies from, you know, the kidneys or the bones or the skin. But who's going to like pop into the doctor and say, hey, I... Needle me. I, you know, I want a biopsy just to rule out oxalates. So, you know, that's not really practical. Urine tests are not super reliable because, you know, you get natural variations in like the oxalates in the urine. And the thing is often symptoms don't directly correlate with intake because oxalates are considered a toxic compound and, you know, I guess a poison to the body. The body in all its beauty has defense systems in place. So it's like, it's why when we ingest or inhale or, you know, we get toxic chemicals or heavy metals in the body, the body will sequester those toxic compounds away and, you know, they'll store them in the fat because fat's inert. So that's a super safe place to store toxic stuff or in the bones. So a lot of heavy metals will get stored in the bones. And, you know, research is starting to show now that potentially a lot of symptoms that postmenopausal women experience could actually be due to, because they lose their estrogen and their bones start to break down, could be due to the release of heavy metals from their bones, things like lead that are causing a lot of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating and a whole nother conversation in itself. Yep. So if you do want to try a low oxalate diet, the strong recommendation from people who know what they're doing is you don't go cold turkey. You don't go from a super high oxalate diet to a 50 milligram oxalate diet. So what you're saying is don't go through that all or nothing phase. Exactly. Do not do all or nothing with oxalate reduction in your diet because you'll then get a dumping of oxalates and chances are symptoms will just exacerbate and go through the roof and it's not the way to go about it. So the recommendations are if you want to try it is have a look at your diet you know, Google some lists of high oxalate foods, see what stands out for what you're eating on a regular basis. And initially for the first few weeks, you might just not cut out those foods, but just reduce the portion size of those foods. So you're eating less of them. Then once you've done that for a little while, then you might pick one really high oxalate food and eliminate that for a week or two Mm -hmm. and just like let the body reset, then pick another food. You know, so it's a process over many, many months to bring the oxalate content down of your diet. So do not do anything extreme, all or nothing. Good advice. 
And one final thing before we go is it's a myth that cooking destroys oxalates. So you'll often see online, oh, you just cook your spinach and you'll get rid of all the oxalates and it's fine. It's got a caveat. Okay. Oxalates cannot be destroyed. They just get moved from one spot to the other. So when you boil spinach, for example, the oxalates will move, not all of them, but a decent percentage will move from the spinach leaves into the water, but then you need to throw that water out. So boiling is a good method to reduce the amount of oxalates in the food, but then don't give, because, you know, we see that green water and we're like, oh, so it's full of goodness. I'll throw it on the pet food. Yeah, or give it to the dog or I'll make a soup out of it or something like that. That's the worst thing you could do. So boiling's the best. Steaming is good. It's not as good as boiling because, I mean, but even when I steam my broccoli and zucchini, you still see the water go green. So it's still leaching some stuff out of it. Things like baking they showed with potatoes really didn't reduce the oxalate load because like the moisture's, I mean, the moisture's coming out, but the oxalates are still stuck in the food. Yep. So don't think that just because you cook a high oxalate food, that it's better. It really depends how you cook it and what you do with that cooking water. So not even thoroughly washing it beforehand or anything will get rid of it? Not that I've read. No, no. you'd really, I don't think washing it would cut it. Yep. Yep. That's a lot of information mm. that I've just dumped on everyone. And I know you're going to have people dreaming of these horrible, sharp, crystalline oxalates coming to get them in their sleep now. It's just, I find it so fascinating. And, you know, like I said, there are, people who are much more expert on this topic than I am. So if you are interested, I highly recommend Sally Norton's website. So sallyknorton.com and she's got great recipes and just great guides and what to look for and what to do and, you know, how to approach the whole situation. And there's a really good Facebook group. One of the best Facebook groups on this topic is called Trying Low Oxalates and then in brackets it's got T-L-O. So tons of information on both of those resources. So have a look at that. If you've got any questions, you know, you can jump onto my Facebook page, Natural Health for People and Pets. You can go to my website, naturalhealthandnutrition.com.au. If you want to email me, narelle at naturalhealthandnutrition.com.au. But it's a fascinating topic and it may just help someone figure out why they're feeling so bad. One question before we wrap up. Yeah. What happened to Sally K. Norton in the end? She's doing awesome. Okay. Yeah, so that was her whole journey, you know, her journey from miserable to to health. I mean, anyone who suffers from chronic health problems, there's always blips in the road. You know, it's never yep. just a linear, perfect journey. And she acknowledges that if she falls off the wagon, you know, with her diet, she, her symptoms will flare up. And that's why it's important to understand why things happen. So when things change, you've got a better understanding of what's going on and what to do to remedy that. Mm. So, but yeah, people can read all about Sally on her website. Terrific. Well, that's a good place to leave it because that's a happy ending. Happy ending. Yep. Bye all. Bye everyone. 